Let's go ahead and read our portion of Scripture this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, in the message I've entitled, Ready for the Bridegroom. Uh, will you all please stand in honor of God and His Word and follow along as I read. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Says, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. Verse 10 And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, open for us, or excuse me, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we pray that you would just minister to us through your word. Lord, we thank you that your word is living, it's, it's active, it's uh, uh, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, and it cuts through uh, right to the heart of the matter. And so, Father, I pray that we would allow ourselves uh, to be uh, your patients this morning. Lord, that you would be uh, performing surgery upon our hearts with your word. And Lord, that we would be yielded to the Spirit's leading and guiding in our lives. Father, we do pray for the Rick Afrente family. We pray for Caleb. Lord, that you'd be with him. Lord, I know his mind's probably racing. I pray you would comfort. And Lord, we do pray for a miraculous healing upon his elbow. Lord, we pray that you would uh, allow them just to arrive there in Yokosuka and, and the doctors would wonder why he, they even sent him. And so, Father, we know that you're able. Uh, Lord, we know that you can do that. So we want to ask for that. Ask for a miracle and trust your plan in and through it all. Lord, we pray for our time this morning. Lord, just asking that you'd lead and guide it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Before we jump into the text, I wanted to do just a little bit of review, uh, and I think it will help to set the stage for what Jesus is talking about here in the opening verses of chapter 25. Okay? Remember that Jesus and his disciples, they are alone on the Mount of Olives, just outside the city of Jerusalem. Okay? The day is Tuesday uh, of the Passion Week. And so just in a few days from now, Jesus will be handed over, he will be scourged, he will be beaten and bruised for our sins, and he will be crucified. And so that's coming quickly, uh, right uh, within the next few days. 
Okay? Uh, he has been causing quite the commotion the last few days. Here it is, Tuesday. He entered into the city. If you guys remember, it was on Sunday, riding on the back of a, of a donkey, a, a, a colt. And when he was doing so, it was a proclamation of who he was, that he was their king, that he was their long-awaited Messiah. And there was quite a scene. Okay? The next day, he went into the temple on Monday and he cleaned house, okay, driving out those that bought and sold. And he drove out the money changers, declaring to all that his father's house was to be a house of prayer. And then early on Tuesday, he entered, he entered into the temple again and he described the nation of Israel's rejection of him. Of him. And he boldly pronounced woes and judgments upon the scribes and Pharisees, these religious rulers, because of their great hypocrisy. And after pronouncing woes upon these religious rulers, Jesus then departed from the temple with his disciples and made their way to this side of the mountain, this Mount of Olives. Recall that here in chapters 24 and 25, we've been going through for the last month or so, uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples in response to a line of questioning that was presented by them regarding the signs of his coming and of the end of the age. You guys may recall Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. Uh, they had asked, what are gonna be, what's going to be the signs of when this is going to take place? And when will we know... Uh, you know, what are the signs that we should be looking for of, of your coming and of the end of the age? And in his response, Jesus, uh, he has uh, identified that in the last days that there will be a number of false Christs. There will be people that claim to be Christ or claim to have seen Christ. Uh, Jesus said, don't believe them. He assured them that the, he assured the disciples that when he does come, all will know. And all will see. It won't be something secret or private uh, like some uh, people claim. Uh, well, we had a secret meeting with Jesus and he showed us through these special things what you need to do now. And, and, and we know that that's not an accurate portrayal of what Christ's coming will be like. He spoke of a time on earth that will be like no other. A time of great tribulation that will be so bad that it, uh, if the days were not shortened, no flesh would be saved. At the close of that time, there will be great signs and wonders in the skies. Celestial bodies will be darkened. Stars will fall from the heavens. And Jesus will return on the clouds and will gather together his elect. Jesus said, of that hour, no man knows. Not even the angels know. Only the Father in heaven knows. And he instructed his disciples to be watchful and to be ready. And that brings us here to chapter 25. Here in chapter 25, Jesus is going to give a couple different parables that tie in with the idea of being watchful and being ready. Okay? Uh, the first parable in chapter 25 is what we're going to cover today. It's often called the parable of the ten virgins. Okay? This parable is one of those parables that doesn't come with an explanation. And so we are left with trying to figure out the interpretation on our own. And through the years, many different interpretations have actually been used to explain this parable. Uh, obviously, 
some of those interpretations are, are incomplete or they are uh, incorrect. Uh, they can't all be right because they say different things. And so we want to be uh, diligent to look at this and rightly divide the Word of God that we might understand what God is saying, what Jesus was saying to his disciples, and what he's saying to us today, his church. Okay? Let's dive in. Verse 1 says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Okay? Jesus is speaking a parable here. Okay? And I know I say this every time we come to a parable, but we need to remember that a parable uh, is an earthly story that conveys a heavenly truth. Okay? Most uh, all of the parables that Jesus spoke were parables that were used, uh, that, excuse me, were parables that used things that were very common okay, to explain spiritual truths. So he'd use something very common, everyone understands something, and then he would apply a spiritual truth to it. Okay? He would use examples of things that everyone knew, things like farming, casting seed, uh, tending to a crop, reaping and harvesting. These are things, it's an agricultural society. Everyone would be familiar with these types of things. Uh, he spoke of cultural, cultural things like wedding ceremonies, birthrights, inheritances, things everyone was familiar with. And he was able to take those very common things and apply spiritual truths to them. And that's what he's doing here this morning. Okay, this parable is about ten virgins, or you could just say young ladies, uh, that are waiting for the bridegroom. Okay? And this is talking about part of the Jewish ceremony and traditions that are part of a traditional Jewish wedding. Okay? In order for us to, to understand, see, we, we, we say, oh, it's about a wedding. We think in our minds what our weddings may look like. And so we, we won't catch... The, the truth, because we're going to have a skewed point of view, we have to realize and understand what a traditional Jewish wedding looked like so that we might understand the truth he's trying to portray here. Okay? Unlike many modern marriages today, uh, the Jewish marriage had a great, great amount uh, of formality to it involving different stages that would actually could span uh, for multiple years. Uh, this marriage process uh, of someone getting married. Okay? Uh, to begin with, there was uh, the proposal and the acceptance in a Jewish marriage. It involved the prospective groom uh, going to the home of the prospective bride, asking permission of her father, but also of the bride, if she would you know, be willing to be his bride. Uh, if accepted, uh, the groom would pay the bride price. Okay? In the Old Testament, we read it's called a, a dowry. Okay? And there would be, hey, you're taking this, this daughter from our family, and so there's a compensation. Uh, sometimes it was uh, a price of money. Uh, sometimes it would be labor. Uh, as you guys recall, um, uh, Jacob, having served uh, for uh, his wives uh, seven years, actually, was asked to serve seven years. That was the price. Uh, and so there would be a bride price okay, uh, for her. And then the agreement uh, would be for this new covenant, this marriage covenant. And, and it would be symbolized, uh, the man would symbolize the proposed covenant by offering to the bride a cup of wine, okay, or a glass, excuse me, a glass of wine uh, to the bride. And if she drank it, 
it symbolized her acceptance of the proposed covenant, uh, and it's called the ketubah. And I'm not Jewish, so I probably butchered that. But uh, the ketubah, and they would enter into a state of betrothal. Okay? Now, a betrothal is kind of like what we think of in, a, uh, in modern ways of an engagement. But it actually was a, a little bit more serious. Okay? Uh, if you were betrothed to someone, you were actually uh, not technically married, but it was as if you were married. Okay? The only way to break off a betrothal would actually to have, you would have to give a certificate of divorce to break off a betrothal. So much different than our engagements that today where you can, oh, it's not worth working or you know you get mad because the wedding plans aren't coming together we're, we're done you know and then it's back on again maybe a couple months later but uh, this betrothal was much more serious a much larger commitment okay after this agreement symbolized uh, by the bride's partaking of this cup of wine then the bridegroom would then stand and say i go to prepare a place for you and i will come again to receive you to myself that where i am you may be also and the young woman would have to wait for him to return and collect her and this jewish custom is called the kiddushin kiddushin um and then there was the engagement Okay, the, that would begin the engagement, the uh, betrothal period. During the time of the betrothal, the groom would go back to his father's house and he would begin to build uh, another house, usually on top of or adjacent to his father's house. Uh, and this is what is symbolized even in today. Uh, if you go to a Jewish wedding, they have what they call the chupa. And it's, a, it's basically like a covering that they will go in, uh, and it symbolizes uh, even that today. Um, he's not allowed to skimp on the work. Even if, like, the groom's like, I want to get married, you know, it's, it looks good, let's just go and get her. And the, the, bride, the groom's father would not allow that. Okay, the, the room, the home need to fit the father's, make the father's approval. Okay, and it wasn't until the father approved of this new home that he would then release his son, allowing him to go and collect and bring to uh, this new home his new bride. Okay? Um, and they actually say if asked the date of his wedding, he would have to reply, only my father knows. Because it was the father that would give and grant, you're ready now, the house is ready now, you can go get your bride. While the groom is doing that, the bride would be expected to make herself ready so that she would be pure and beautiful for her bridegroom. And during this time, she would wear a veil. Okay? Uh, when she would go out in town, she would wear this veil, symbolizing that she's betrothed, that she's spoken for, that she's not available, even though she's not technically with her husband yet. She's spoken for, and so this veil symbolized that. And the engagement period uh, could go for this betrothal. It could be a couple months. It could be up to a year. Uh, it just depend on when the father said it was okay to come get your bride. Um, after all of this, when the room or chamber was ready, the father would send the son, the bridegroom, to go collect his bride, and he could do this. Uh, at any time, and so the bride would have to make special arrangements to be ready. Okay, the bride kind of had to always be ready, and so you know, they. I, I was reading. They said, "The ladies, you have a go bag." It's like I'm ready to go bag. I don't know if that's something. You know, maybe pregnant ladies have a go bag, right? Uh, 
prepared ladies have a go back maybe, you know, uh, where it's like, okay, it's time to go. I got it. I'm on the, you know, and they'd have their veil and they would have um, their uh, other things, the, the, the lamp beside her bed, her friends, the bridesmaids. That's who we're talking about in this parable. She would have friends, bridesmaids that were waiting and they had to be ready as well. Because the groom would come with his buddies, uh, the groomsmen uh, of our uh, uh, weddings today. And as they got close to the bride's house, they would give a shout and they would blow a shofar uh, to announce his arrival. And traditionally, this would be done at night uh, when torches made for a beautiful display. And when the wedding party arrived, uh, the bridesmaids would come out and together they would gather the bride-to-be. And all of them would return to the father's uh, the, the groom's father's house. And so it would be at night and there'd be a lot of celebration and rejoicing in this torch-lit uh, procession of uh, this bride and this groom making their way to the father's house to, to consummate their marriage, to finalize that marriage. Okay? In our account this morning, Jesus is referring to how things are in the kingdom of heaven. And he's relating it to the part in a Jewish wedding ceremony where the bridegroom has been sent by his father to come and receive his bride. The ten virgins are basically, they're all bridesmaids, okay, Uh, that are part of the wedding party whose responsibility it was to welcome the bridegroom and his companions into the bride's house to receive her and escort the couple to the father's house uh, where the bridegroom has prepared a place for them. Verse 1 tells us that the ten virgins had taken their lamps and gone out to meet the bridegroom. And and from the outside looker on, the the person who's just looking from the outside, these ten maidens, they would look all the same. All had their lamps, all were looking for the bridegroom, but verses 2 through 4 are going to explain to us a very significant difference between some of these maidens. And so let's read verses 2 through 4. It says, Now five of them were wise, and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Jesus said that of the ten virgins, five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. And what made them wise or foolish? Well, it tells us. Okay, there's only one thing that he gave to us as a distinction, uh, and that it's the five foolish ones did not take any oil for their lamps, while the five wise ones, they did take oil in their vessels along with their lamps. That's the only distinction between them. So that's what made them foolish and what, what made them wise was the fact that they had oil or they didn't have oil. Now these lamps that are spoken of were more than likely more like torches uh, than actual oil lamps that would be used in a home. In fact, this same Greek word is used in other places of the Bible and it's actually there translated as torch. And so uh, more than likely it's referring to this type of torch. These torches were uh, more than likely a a wooden staff that would be held in the hand uh, with a dish at the top. Uh, in which was a piece of cloth or rope that would be dipped in oil. It was very common for the bridegroom to come at night, as I mentioned, and so they would have these 
torches ready in to make this beautiful torch-lit procession. And it would create uh, and add beauty and excitement to the whole entire scene. Uh, I think most ladies would think that's really romantic, you know, being escorted by torchlight through the dark night and all that kind of stuff. Maybe some of you wouldn't, but I think that that would be kind of cool. Um, all of the ten ladies had a lamp, but only five of them had oil with them. The other five didn't bring any oil. And this will prove to be very costly for the ladies with no oil. What is Jesus describing here? Okay, this is a funeral, uh, not funeral, a wedding procession, uh, something that they would be very familiar with. Okay, this is a custom and part of their, they're very familiar with this. And so they understand what he's talking about. How do we understand? What is he talking about? Okay. We can't be for certain because we don't know, we've not given the uh, interpretation. Jesus didn't give us the interpretation for this one. But we do know that in many other places in the Bible that oil is a picture of the Spirit of God. In Zechariah chapter 4, the prophet Zechariah, he sees a vision of a golden lampstand. And with uh, this lampstand actually had seven lamps upon it. And beside it were two Uh, olive trees and he describes the vision and the two olive trees they actually would drip oil into the pipes that fed the seven lamps upon the golden lampstand that he said that he saw okay and when he saw the vision he asked there was an angel in this vision and he asked the angel that he was speaking to he said uh actually the angel questioned him do you know what these are and Zechariah replied, No, my Lord. And at that moment, the angel spoke to him the significance of the vision And when he declared, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You know, the supply of oil in Zechariah's vision, it was a picture uh, of the Spirit of God upon Zerubbabel. Another example of oil representing the Spirit of God okay, can be found in 1 Samuel chapter 16, where Samuel went to Bethlehem to anoint one of Jesse's sons as king. Okay, if you're familiar with that portion of Scripture, you'll recall that Samuel, he went and found Jesse, and he had him bring out all his sons. And one by one, the Lord shot down each of Jesse's sons as not being the one. And after all that were presented had passed before Samuel and none were chosen, Samuel had to ask Jesse, uh, you know, are there, are there any other ones? You know, if indeed that these were all of his sons. And Jesse did then confirm that there was still one more, the youngest one, that he was out with the sheep and didn't even feel like it was, you know, worth bringing him in, basically. And so Samuel says, bring him here. And you'll recall, uh, when the young man arrived, the Lord declared to Samuel to arise and anoint him with oil, for he was the one. It was David. And that day, Samuel anointed David with a horn of oil. And when he did so, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So we see another picture of oil and the representation of the Spirit of God 
in the life of an individual. And there are many other examples of oil being connected with the presence of the Spirit of God, but we don't have all day uh, to do that because it would take us all day to look at them all. Uh, So we're going to go on. But just so we know, a biblical example uh, to show the connection between oil and the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God in an individual. If then the oil is representative of the Spirit of God, we would come to the conclusion that five of these virgins have the Spirit of God and five of them do not. It's interesting to even consider the wordage that's used here because in verse 4 it declares that the wise took oil in their vessels. And obviously this would be speaking of some sort of jar or flask that they would have their oil in. But symbolically it points to something different. The word vessel in the classical Greek, it meant the body of man in contrast to his soul. And so uh, with this understanding, we see the symbolic meaning of not just having the Spirit of God alongside them, this oil alongside them in a container of some kind, but that the actual Spirit of God filled their body. I believe what we have described here before us in these five wise maidens is a picture of believers that are filled with the Spirit of God. I believe this parable is used to draw a distinction between true believers and false believers. Okay? Just like many of the other kingdom parables from earlier in the book of Matthew, if you've been with us for some time, you'll recall we went through those uh, kingdom parables. And Jesus, as he was there, he was delineating between those that believe and those that were really just pretending. Okay? Remember the parable of the sower. It was only the seed that found good soil that produced a harvest. The other seeds, they looked the part, but they didn't last. They were choked out by the cares of this world or scorched and withered by uh, the trials and difficulties that come in life. The parable of the wheat and the tares, they were both planted in the same field, but it wasn't until the end that they were separated. The parable of the mustard seed, it pictured an abnormal growth of the church due to false believers filling it. And that was pictured by, if you guys remember, the birds that came and nested in the branches of the this huge tree the parable of the leaven it pictured sin that would be hidden in the church and would spread throughout it on and on jesus used parables to delineate between those that were truly uh, uh, believers and those that just pretended to be part of what was going on and i believe he's doing the same thing in this parable as well today there are some in the church, and when I say church, I mean like congregations. Okay, kind of, not, I don't want to put, well, probably, sadly, you know, even maybe within our church. But in churches today, I'm not talking about the church of Christ, the body of Christ, the, the true believers. Okay, that's often referred to as the church. Uh, but when I say church, I'm talking about congregations. You go to the, the, the chapel that's on that church uh, corner or whatever, that church. Okay? And, and today... Uh, in, in churches, there are many uh, in the church that look the part. Okay? Uh, they have their torches, but they don't have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. You see, it is possible to look the part and to even go out with the others, just like these five foolish maidens did, and still not be where you need to be. 
They had torches just like the five wise maidens. They were part of the same crowd as the five wise maidens. They hung out together. They spent time together. Uh, They went out together as described in verse 1. But they didn't have any oil. They didn't have the Spirit of God. You see, there are some who come to church and they spend time with the church and they hang out with people in the church and they look the part and they bring their Bibles and they'll sing some songs, but they don't have the Spirit of God living within them. They have not yielded their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They have not been sealed with the Holy Spirit as described in 2 Corinthians as Paul describes the Spirit of God as a guarantee that we are His and that we are in Christ. Paul said in Romans that if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, then he is not God's. Later on he said, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And then a few verses later he went on to say, that the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see, if you don't have the Spirit of God within you, then you're not a child of the Lord. You are not a true believer. Every believer, every child of God has the Spirit of God dwelling within them. And not only do we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, we are also led by the Spirit of God, as Paul mentioned in verse 14 of Romans 8. Let me ask you something this morning. How is God's Spirit leading you? Are you aware of God's Spirit moving in your life? Are you close enough to the Holy Spirit that you sense His leading in your life? And and are you faithfully walking in the direction that He's leading you? You know, I I fear and and I believe that there are are some in the church that have lost touch with the Spirit of God that dwells with inside them. We we often can crowd uh, crowd our lives with so many other things, so much other noise that we fail to hear the Spirit's voice that's trying to lead us and guide us through life. If we have any hope of excelling in this life, it will only come as a result of us being able to be led by the Holy Spirit and God's plan for our lives. The other interesting thing that Paul said was that the Spirit, it bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see, I believe that deep down, we all know whether or not we're really in this thing for good. I think if we were honest with ourselves and real with ourselves, and we took investment uh, assessment of our lives, we'd be confident. Because those who are believers, that we have an assurance. We have a confidence that we are sealed, that we are Christ. But I think that there are some who are playing games, and some that are pretending and some that come and they've got their torches and they're walking around with everybody else, but they don't have any oil. And I think everyone knows that because the Spirit within us testifies. And so we need to make assessment in our lives. This morning, do you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you? Do you know that you are the Lord's? Do you hear the Spirit's testimony in your spirit confirming your place with Him? 
Are you being led by the Spirit? Do you hear His voice leading and guiding you? And my hope, my hope is that we all would be able, be in a place that we'd be able to confidently answer yes to every single one of those questions. Yes, the Spirit of God dwells within me. Yes, uh, I know that I am the Lord's. And yes, I hear the Spirit's testimony confirming to me that I am His. And yes, I'm being led by the Spirit. And yes, I'm familiar enough with Him to know where He's leading. And I'm walking in that. That is a good place to be. It's a place where we all should be. And if we can't say yes to all of those questions, and maybe we should take that as an indication that we ought to take our relationship with the Spirit of God a little bit more serious. We need the Spirit of God to be an active part of our life in Christ. We cannot make do without Him. And unfortunately, a lot of people try to. Verse 5 through 6, it says, But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. In verses 5 and 6, we see that the bridegroom was delayed in his coming. No reason is given to us for why he was delayed. And it's probable that he simply was still making ready all that was necessary for the wedding. You know, weddings take a lot of preparation and time, and they're important events. And the bridegroom obviously wanted everything to be perfect for his bride, or at least the father wanted everything to be perfect uh, for his new daughter-in-law. The bridegroom, he finally starts making his way for his bride at midnight. And a cry or a shout was heard declaring his coming. And I believe that it is safe to say that Jesus is identifying himself as the bridegroom in this account. Uh, it would, it, it's easy plug because he's already actually done that previously in Matthew. Uh, if you look back in Matthew chapter 9, he's already identified himself as the bridegroom. In Matthew 9, Jesus, in response to those that questioned him and his disciples about fasting, you guys remember, he said, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. And so Jesus is saying, they're with the bridegroom. They're not going to fast right now. It's a time of celebration. When I'm gone, when the bridegroom's gone, then they'll fast. And so Jesus has already identified himself previously as the bridegroom. And so we look at this and we identify this bridegroom is talking about Jesus Christ. It's interesting. Because uh, here it says that the bridegroom was delayed. And there are many... There are many who like to mock the church and the church's belief in the return of Jesus Christ. They'll say people have been saying that for years and years. Oh yeah, Jesus is coming back. Uh Uh-huh, I heard it before. Uh, You know, and they'll mock and they'll ridicule. You guys have been saying that for centuries and he still hasn't come. You know, the interesting thing is that as they mock and ridicule, not knowing that they themselves are actually fulfilling the very scripture that speaks about his coming. Because 2 Peter chapter 3, it actually states that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And it's just crazy. The, The thing to consider is that The love of the Lord and his desire that none should perish is actually what's making him appear to be delayed. 
Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, just a few verses later, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I think it's interesting. I'm so glad the Lord didn't come back. I got an opportunity to be saved. And then I can be so selfish sometimes. And I'm like, well, I'm saved. Come on back, Lord. Well, what about, a, what about the other people that haven't responded yet? And, and I know I was glad that the, he was de- seemed to be delayed. And I know others will be glad as well. And so God's heart is that none would perish. And so it may seem like he's delayed. But I believe he's right on time. And he's got a plan. I do know this. God is going to keep His word. God is going to come. He's just wanting more people to be part of the celebration there. Uh, He's going to prepare a place for us, His church, and it's going to be just right. And I can't wait. It's going to be incredible when we're there at the wedding feast of the Lamb, in the presence of the Lord. It's going to be just amazing. Part of me says, come now, Lord. I want to be part of that. But then I know people probably prayed that way before I got saved. And so I'm kind of glad that he's, he's waited. God's going to keep his word. And, and we're going to hear that cry, that cry here that's mentioned in verse 6, that cry that, behold, the bridegroom is coming. We're going to hear that cry. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17 declares, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the, vow, the voice of an arch, archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead will rise first. Then we who live and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. I am looking forward to it. When the cry went out that uh, the bridegroom was coming, that... That was their cue to get going. Okay? And so all ten of the maidens, they got up and they trimmed their lamps. Let's read verses 7 through 9. It says, Then all those virgins arose, trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. The idea here uh, of trimming their lamps, it actually speaks of them putting their torches in order. Okay? It, it means to adorn or decorate or to uh, garnish. It's like when we say we, we trim the Christmas tree, we put all the ornaments on it, and we make it pretty. And so these lamps, these torches, and decorative, it's not just like a, a, a club stick with some, you know, it, it looked nice. It was part of this wedding ceremony. And so they would have all the trimmings, the fix, decorating it, making it look nice. Uh, and, and this is when the division of the ten virgins becomes evident. Okay? The five foolish virgins wanted the five wise to share their oil with them, for their lamps were going out. But the wise would not share their oil, and they directed them to go buy their own oil. Now, some may look at this parable, and, and they may think that, man, those, those wise ladies, they should have shared their oil. That's kind of mean, right? 
Uh, and, and perhaps they could have shared. But the point of this parable, it, it's not a parable about sharing. Okay? The, the point of this parable, it is a parable about being prepared and being ready. Okay? Saying that the wise maidens should have shared their oil would totally take away from the application uh, of being ready and being prepared. Instead, one could walk away with the sense uh, that, you know, I don't really need to be prepared. I'll just borrow uh, from others and I'll make do. And, and that's clearly not what this parable is teaching. So uh, we don't want to look at those w- wise women and say, what's their deal? Why didn't they share? Uh, that's not the point of this parable, okay? Uh, in fact, I think that the very opposite is what is really intended, okay? You see, you come to Christ by using the Holy Spirit in someone else's life. You can't go to your grandma or your mama and say, hey, you got some of that Holy Spirit stuff I need so I can get some of that and I can go and be part of the party and the celebrations in heaven. Uh, Can you give me some of that? That doesn't work that way. You need to go to the source and get it for yourself. You can't borrow someone else's Holy Spirit. And you hear me say that, and it sounds kind of crazy to even think that way, but you know what? People think that way. People think that because their grandma or their mom was Christian that it will be good enough. That they'll get in simply because they've got a connection uh, to someone that's in. Heaven is not a social club that you gain access to just because you know someone who knows someone. You need to know the Lord yourself. You need to go through the Son, Jesus Christ. You need the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you to be part of the celebration in heaven. There's no way of getting around it. You need to go to the source yourself. And so that's what we see the picture here. These wise ladies say, no, you go to the the, the guy who sells the oil and you go get your own oil. Just like we, we can't borrow someone else's Holy Spirit. Even if the Holy Spirit's, you know, we got someone, you know, some people just filled with this Holy Spirit, overflowing with the Holy Spirit, you can't rub off, it doesn't rub off on you, okay? It doesn't get you in that way. You need to go to the source yourself, okay? The wise maidens, they told the foolish ones that they needed to go to the distributor of the oil, buy from him, likewise we need to go there to the Lord, who gives to us his Spirit that we might receive from Him. And there's no other way. Verse 10 through 12, let's read. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with Him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But He answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, do not know you. As the foolish maidens went to seek their own oil, the bridegroom came. The wise maidens were welcomed into the wedding, and the doors were shut. The foolish ladies came after the doors were shut, and they begged for the doors to be open, only to hear the bridegroom declare, I do not know you. They were left on the outside, wanting to be on the inside, but having no means available to go in. The Lord is going to come back. 
And he is going to gather together his church. And the doors will be shut one day. Make no mistake about it. There will be an end to this open invitation that the Lord gives to you this day. Your chance to be part of the wedding feast of the Lamb will one day pass. And there will be no means for you to enter in and partake of the celebration in heaven. No amount of begging there. Lord, Lord, let us in. We really want to come in now. We really blew it, but we want to be in there really bad. It's not going to work. We were, we were part of the original party guests. We've got our torches. I don't know you. Today, the invitation still stands. The door is still wide open to any who would desire to come. And I don't know when the door will shut. But I do know this. One day it will shut. One day our chances to respond and to be prepared for the bridegroom, our chances will be done. And then it will be too late. You will miss out on your opportunity to enjoy the wedding celebration in heaven when Christ is united with His bride, the church, in heaven. And it's going to be glorious. It's going to be awesome. Uh, uh, but there will be people that are left out on the outside that thought they were part of the wedding party, that uh, wanted really badly to be there, but just never prepared themselves to meet the bridegroom. Don't be like these foolish virgins that had no oil. Those young maidens, they had every opportunity to get ready beforehand. They were invited to be part of the wedding party, not with the others from the wedding desired to be part of the wedding uh, celebration, but they missed out because they didn't properly prepare themselves to meet the bridegroom. Don't be like them. Don't miss out on the opportunity that the Lord is giving you to properly prepare yourself for His coming. You can receive the oil of God's Holy Spirit by responding to His work in your life. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit, one of the jobs that the the duties or whatever we want to call it, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in this world is that the Holy Spirit convicts an individual of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. And if you feel the Spirit moving in your life this morning and He's showing you that you need to get right with God, that the invitation is being presented to you, then you need to be obedient to that work in your life. And you need to confess your sins. And you need to repent of them, which means to turn from them. And you need to receive by faith Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And it's not so much the words you say, but it's the position of your heart. If your heart is at a place where you're ready to surrender to the Lord, He'll see that. He'll come in and His Spirit will dwell inside of you. That oil will be present and you will be ready to meet the bridegroom. When he comes. Verse 13 says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And Jesus here gives us our own application. Verse 13, We need to watch. We need to be ready for the day of his coming. We don't know the day nor the hour. And so we must live each day and each hour with the expectation that it could be our last. 
Today may be the day, and it may be 11.30 is the hour. I don't know. Some of you are like, that would be good, because he always goes late. We don't know. We need to be prepared, and we need to be living our lives in such a manner that when he does come back, we're not ashamed. We're not like, oh no, I was kind of doing something that's not so good right now. We need to live our life in a manner that we're ready. If today's the day and this hour is the hour, are we ready? Are we prepared? We need to be. I hope that we are living in such a manner that when He does come, that we will be ready. That we won't have any... uh, lost opportunities that we regret. Today, as I mentioned, we're going to partake of communion. And so uh, I know, as I mentioned, it's a a week earlier, but I felt the Lord impressing upon my heart the desire to to make this available for us today. And so we're going to do that. You know, I have to to actually, you know, the Spirit and the Lord has to speak to me before I can speak to you guys. And so when He says, let's do something different, I'll say, no, it's... The first Sunday of the month is when we do that, Lord. And it's like, are you listening to the Spirit leading you? Okay. All right. So we're going to do communion today. And so I'd like to go ahead and invite Nick and the worship team back up here and ask the ushers to prepare the communion elements. And here's what I'd like to ask. Nick and the team, they're going to lead us in a song. And then the ushers are going to pass out the communion elements. And I want you guys to hold on to them. Okay, because we're going to partake as a family together in communion this morning. And so, uh, Roy, uh, if you can get the guys, just have them start passing out the communion elements, pass out the bread and then the cup. And then uh, as once everybody receives the elements, hold on to them. I'll come back up and we'll conclude our time here this morning. All right? Mm-hmm.